Job 1.13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So, Father, we come before you. We acknowledge, Lord, that if you gave us a choice here this morning, our flesh would boldly say we never want to suffer. We never want to struggle. We never want to lose. We never want pain. Our flesh would say that. But you have not made us people of our flesh. You have made us people of the Spirit. And so what we want to do, Father, is we want our flesh to be crucified and we want to declare that if we suffer, we will praise you. If we lose, we will worship you. If we endure pain and conflict and warfare, that your song will still be our song. We do not ask, to ask, we do not ask you to keep us immune from every problem because, Father, we want to be like your son, Jesus, and if we are going to be like Jesus, we have to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And so today I'm asking you to sober us about this issue. But at the time that you sober us, Lord, I'm asking you also to strengthen us so that we can respond to the overall plan that you have for our lives. Let every single person right now that's hearing this who is in his or her own valley, let them know it's not the end. Let them know that the valley doesn't have the last word. Let them know that the pain will not have the last punctuated mark in their heart. Let them know that the sickness will give way to life everlasting. Let them know that what loss has taken place here, there is coming a promised day of reward that will make every earthly loss vanish in its memory. We need faith. Give us faith, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So I want to talk to you today about worshiping in the ruins. We've had fun this morning. I love worshiping when the vibe is right, the band is on, the voices are moving with each other the way they should. I love it when there's a spirit of celebration and expectation and the atmosphere is punctuated with the presence of the Holy Spirit. I love that. It's, it's, it's easy and authentic. It's, it's not inauthentic because it's easy. It's both. Sometimes it's authentic and easy to worship. And then there's other times where worshiping is very difficult because our emotions are running one way while God is calling us to himself the other way. And we have to press into worship. We have to move forward into the presence of the Lord and come out of what our emotions are saying, what our circumstances are dictating, what our fears are screaming over us. Sometimes worship is warfare. You have to war through your worship to get into that place where you, you, are, you find your centering again. You find your equilibrium spiritually. And Job is about to experience this. And so I'm going to pretend that nobody's ever heard of Job before. And I'm going to take us through these verses and give you the backdrop of his life. And then at the end, I'm going to call all of us to a sober yet expectant commitment that we are going to remain both worshipers with our mouth and worshipers with our will, that we will both give praise up, upward towards the Lord, but we will live out our worship by pressing through whatever the grind is that's coming against us. I don't come to you today as a guy that just skips over every hardship in life. I'm not the dude who's not, who's not moved by, by difficulty. I've struggled immensely in the last week. I've had two days in the last week where, um, especially for about a 12-hour period, where I, I, I was just so off kilter and wasn't myself and was being bombarded with all this bad news and all this stuff I didn't want to hear, and, and I felt it. And it took me a minute to get my, myself reoriented into truths that were greater than medical facts and prognoses and difficulties that were being spoken over me. I had to cut through the noise of the life to be able to hear the voice of the Lord again. And that's what worship is sometimes. Sometimes worship is dancing. I like to dance. I've got no skill at it, but I try to do what I can. I like to do that. I like to sing. I like to lift my hands. I like to shout. I like to run. I like to preach. I like to do all of that stuff. But sometimes worshiping is like cutting through the thicket and you're getting scraped by the briars, but you're making progress and you're cutting through it and you're just getting, trying to get to that open place that God's calling your name from. And sometimes that's, that's as good as worship gets, but, it, but it's worship. He's very pleased with some of you this morning because you didn't come in feeling it. You didn't come in with everything, with the wind at your back and everything blowing in the right direction. You didn't come in with nine people that were in your corner saying, go Christian. You, you, you came in and it took every ounce of spiritual gumption in you to get out of the car and make it in the front door, but you did it. And you sang and you prayed, and you waited, and you let your weak, little, pitiful yes to God, that's all you had, but you, you gave it, and he said, I, I accept that. I accept that weak, little, pitiful yes as if it was a flaming bonfire of yes. I take it because you released it in faith. Job's about to learn how to do that. In verse 1, we learn a little bit about Job's character. 
We learn a little bit about his character. This is what his biblical testimony is. It speaks of his integrity. It says there's a man, and by the way, this is not what the Bible is saying simply. This is not just a record. This is what, what God is saying of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and the man was blameless and upright. So the testimony recorded in Scripture, and God would define it later in a, in a private conversation with none other than Satan himself, God would describe Job as a righteous, holy, blameless, upright man. That means that Job was right with God, and he was right with all the other people in his life. He's a rare breed that wasn't content just to have it right with God, and then he treated everybody else like whatever. But he, he, because he was right with God, he said, I must be right with others. And so that was reflected in his life. So he was a man of spiritual integrity. He was also one who, I would just say, we see his spirituality. It says he was one who feared God. Now, that's, that's a phrase that is used often in the Old Testament to define somebody who's in a right relationship with God. What it's saying is Job was a believer. He was justified. He had surrendered and submitted his life in faith unto Yahweh, and that faith was evidenced by Job living a reverent and obedient life unto the Lord. It doesn't mean he was sinless, but it does mean it's, he's described as being blameless. It means when he sinned, he owned his sin. He did what was necessary to make that sin right with others or right before God, and so he was a righteous man. So let's get the picture because what you're about to see all happens, what I've or just read a few moments ago, it all happened to a guy who was right with God. Look at his maturity, or excuse me, his morality. He was one who feared God. He was one who turned away from evil. So he wasn't one of those believers that, you know, got his worship vibe on when everybody was looking, but then he did his little secret stuff on the side. It says he turned away from evil, so he was committed he was sanctified. He was obedient. He was moral. He wasn't a legalist. He wasn't walking around legislating some outward form of righteousness to people. It, it just meant this. The goodness of God in his heart saturated his life and came out in how he lived. That's what being a believer is. Being a believer is not simply saying yes to a set of facts. Being a believer is we're surrendering to a king, and that king inhabits us and lives his nature out through our human nature. And so what we do is we reflect King Jesus to the world. And Job was doing the Old Testament um, parallel of that. So just very quickly, this is the kind of believer that I want to be. This is the kind of believer that you want to be, be. Now, we're going to skip down into verses 2 through 5, and you're going you're to find out that Job's inwardly good life was attached to an outwardly comfort life. Look at this, look at his special comforts. This doesn't happen to everybody. It's not even a promise to everybody, but Job got to walk in this, these special comforts. Look at his family. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. So Job was a married man. We don't hear a lot from his wife, and what we do hear from her reveals a woman who's about to be heartbroken because of the tragedy that found her family. But there was a moment in time where Mr. and Mrs. Job were the happy couple, 
And, and, and 10 times Mrs. Job had come to Job and said, honey, I'm pregnant. We're going to have another baby. And seven times it was a boy and three times it was a girl. And so you've got this godly couple that are worshiping the Lord and serving the Lord and raising their family under the Lord, doing the best that they could possibly do to put their kids in an atmosphere of knowing the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so Job's a family man. And here's also something that's very clear in Scripture. Job was a high roller. He had fortune. Verse 3 says this, He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Now, we're going to have to translate that into some modern-day bling, okay? Because I... If somebody gives me 7,000 sheep tomorrow, to me, that's trouble. That's not wealth. That's trouble. I don't want 3,000 camels. I don't want 500 yoke of oxen or 500 female donkeys. That's going to cause a mess up in my neighborhood, and the HOA is going to be all after me about that. But what it translates to Job is this. If you've got 7,000 sheep, that means during sheep shearing season, that means you've got 7,000 collections of wool, which you then market in the marketplace, you sell, and it generates tons of income. If you've got 3,000 camels, those are bred and sold for transportation, for hauling. So he's raising and breeding camels that are transporting his goods, and he's also selling them to others so that they can transport their goods. If you've got 500 yoke of oxen, that means you have a massive team of animals that can do all of your farming for you and plowing your fields and then pulling behind uh, them carts for for moving these things. You got 500 female donkeys, the delicacy in that day of milk, that would have been amazing to have that many donkeys producing that much milk. And then it adds in that he had uh, uh, very many servants and we would view those as employees. So when you think of Job, I want you to think of a godly, righteous family man and business man that everything he touched had God's anointing on it everything he touched it might be a good point to say in our day of class and wealth envy because it's very popular today if somebody's rich we just assume the worst about them you can't substantiate that by scripture some people actually just get blessed of God to generate a lot of money and they're not evil their hearts are pure their hearts are clean and they do great things with it and by the way it's actually none of our business anyway who has what or what they do with it You didn't have to pay anything extra for that. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Job had the life. And apparently he had it a long time because by the time calamity hits, his kids are grown. So this wasn't just some small season. Job had been learning what it meant for him, what it meant for him to live as a follower of God. This is what we do, by the way. I want you to get this. I think there could be a word of wisdom on on this for somebody. When we live a certain way towards God and we experience the same repeated results for living that certain way, in Job's case, I honor God, I honor other people, my fortunes are blessed, my riches are blessed, my business is blessed, my family is blessed, my body is blessed, and he probably never even tried it, tried to come up with this, but we learn ingrained patterns of relating with God, and we start to develop formulas. If I do this, then God responds this way. When God responds this way, he then wants me to respond this way, and we enter into the subconscious relationship with God that becomes a little bit of this and that. For Job, 
He was interacting with God the only way he knew how. He's honoring the Lord, and the Lord is honoring him. But all of the sudden, things are about to shift. And what Job finds out, and I can't do the whole book of Job today, but what he finds out is that a lot of his presumptions about life as a God follower came crashing down on him when tragedy hit him. So let's go a little bit further into this. Notice his fame. He's not only a family man with a ton of money, a ton of success, but he's also well-known. It says, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, sometimes when you read your Bible, just let it say what it says. The testimony of Job according to the Holy Spirit who inspired this to be written was there was not a single man in Job's generation that was a greater man than Job. He was it. You want to be a great man? You need to hang out with Job. You, 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 want, you want the touch of God on your life and you wonder what that looks like? You need to check out Job. Go see Job. Go learn from Job. Go mimic Job. Go worship like Job. Go follow like Job. Go treat your family like Job. Go do your business like Job. Job's the greatest man anywhere that anybody has ever seen in this region. And that was the testimony of Scripture and everybody knew it. Here's the part that a lot of people didn't see but God saw. It wasn't just his fame and his family and his fortune and all of that stuff. It was his faithfulness, verses 4 and 5. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned, and curse God in their hearts. And then these four words, thus Job did continually. So most people in Job's life probably didn't, didn't know this. Job's wife may have known. So what Job would do is he, he, he didn't get, caught so, get so caught up in his business, so caught up in his fame, so caught up in his fortune, so caught up in his worship that he, that he took his eye off his kids. And his kids were not little kids at this point. They're grown kids. And Job said, I need to be the priest of my family. I need to remember that my kids, my sons are still learning. My daughters are still learning. And if they have done something to grieve the heart of the Lord, I want to intercede for them. I want to step in the gap for them. Until they learn how to walk with the Lord, I feel the responsibility and the priestly calling to intercede for my children. And if they have sinned, I will make sacrifice unto the Lord for that sin. So again, we see another layer of this godly man's heart, and I'm thinking, there doesn't seem to be any kind of uh, vulnerable spot in the guy. He seems to have it all together. And for you and I, as far as we're concerned, uh, he probably did. Now, we didn't read any of those verses, and we didn't read verses 6 through 11 either, but let me tell you what was going on in heaven while Job was living the good life on earth. Satan shows up in the courts of heaven one day. God looks at Satan and says, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been walking all up and down planet earth. And God says, did you meet Job? Have you ever heard of Job? Job, my servant, Job that fears me. Job that is righteous, Job that runs from evil, 
Now, you see, one thing to know about the devil, and he's real. He's a fallen angel. Lucifer, Satan is his name we usually use. He's the accuser. A couple of things you need to know about him. One, he does not have full control of anything. You need to hear me on that. Somebody challenged me on that the other day, and they said, well, no, he's got the title deed to the earth. I want to tell you, in the book of Job, you see very clearly that when Satan wants to do something, he's got to get permission. So I don't go around running away wondering if the devil's got something going on that God can't handle. And so God actually brings Job up to Satan. Satan's like, I don't know about this Job guy, but I tell you what, he probably worships you because he's afraid of you and probably because you've blessed him so much. He's got all this stuff. He's got this great family. He's got it all together. I tell you what, God, how about you let me put my hand on him for a minute? We'll see if he worships you. Now, Job didn't have Job chapter 1. So Job didn't have a clue any of this was going on. But I I want you to get this. We read this sometimes like it's just kind of like Aesop's fable or something. This really happened. There was a moment when Satan was summoned to stand before God. They had a conversation and, and so Satan challenges God, and Job is the challenge. Now, you want your theology stretched? I'm going to. God said this, I'll let you touch his life. You can touch his property, you can touch his wealth, you can t- but don't kill him. I'll let you touch him. So Satan is a thief, he's a liar, and is a destroyer. And he can't do anything anything outside of the permission of the will. This is where we have to be big boys and girls. And we have to start recognizing that if calamity from the devil has entered my life, it has not taken God by surprise. And God, in some part of what, is allowing, what he's allowing to happen, God wants to bring good out of me and good out of this situation so that he can be glorified. <laughs> Satan always means it for destruction. God always means it for development. And so he lets Satan go back down to planet Earth and go after Job. Now, if that bothers you, I can somewhat understand because modern American Christianity teaches you that uh, God keeps you immunized from all trouble, that if God is good, he never lets your face break out. He never lets you get into a fender bender. You'll never get fired. You're never going to get sick. You're never going to have anything ever happen to you because God is the glorified bellhop in heaven there to meet your needs. That's not the God of the Bible. God did not even spare his own son, Jesus, from suffering on planet Earth. And yet the modern gospel is, is that if we are in Jesus because he took all of our punishment, therefore we are immune from all of it, then why did Paul say, I've got to know the fellowship of his sufferings? Suffering is a part of life, friends. And sometimes it comes at the hand of the devil. But when it comes at the hand of the devil, it comes through the permission of God. And if it comes through the permission of God, it's because God has treasure in your trouble. And the question is, will we endure the trouble to find God's treasure? And Job is going to find out if he can and if he will. So here's the sudden catastrophe. Just notice the timing of his trouble. It just reads so simply in the English language, but if you think about it happening in real time, it's overwhelming. It says, now there was a day. 
There was a day. It was one day. Let's just make it a Thursday. And on that Thursday, Job's entire life fell completely apart. There was a 24-hour period, and actually, the report of it seems to have come within about five minutes, and it comes in successive reports of calamity that are hitting this man. Boom, 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 boom. Remember, a righteous man, a man in the will of God, a man who loved God, a man who feared God, a man who honored other people, a man who was careful about his uh, family, serving as the priest of his family, a man who was doing everything right. You couldn't find a, um, a broken part of his testimony. And then one day came along, we are not to ever live under the spirit of fear. It is, it is antithetical to wake up every day and say, is this going to be the day everything falls apart? We should never live like that. But I'm going to promise you something. There will be six, uh, times in your life where you have a day like that. I hope there won't be many, but likely there will be a day where some devastating piece of news comes at you at rocket speed and hits the bullseye of your heart with no sirens warning ahead of time about a missile coming in. You won't see it coming. There, there have been times in our lives where we thought, I, I just wish I knew it was coming. And, and I, I get that emotionally, I get that, but here's my thought. If it's coming and if it's bad and it's scary and it's mean and it's heavy, do you really wish you knew that it was coming? How much warning would have helped you? A month? A month of what? A month of watching that day on the calendar get closer and closer? What, an hour? 60 minutes of just, uh, no. God is so wise in not announcing ahead of time that day is coming. But friends, listen, life on planet Earth involves some bad Job Thursdays. Here comes the trouble, and let's just let it say what it says. Messengers start coming to him. I mean, you just got to think. I think in modern terms, and I picture it. Job is reading over what happened the day before in the business. He's there in the kitchen with his wife. They've made small talk, talking about the kids, talking about life. He's drinking some good Hebrew coffee, and he's just, you know, going about the day, and then there, there's somebody, they're looking out the window, and somebody's running quickly up, up the pathway, and he steps outside because he senses it's urgent. He puts his coffee down, and it's the messenger out of breath, and the messenger says, your, your wealth, your, your, your wealth, it's all been stolen. He says, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans or the Sabians fell upon them and took them. So you've got this marauding band of thieves that would make raids on certain areas and they would go in and by violence, they would steal everything. And so in one moment, Job the businessman learns that all of his stock that he had in hand upon which he relied for daily commerce has been stolen and raided and taken from him in an instant. But it gets worse. The same servant says, and by the way, all of your employees have been murdered. The same ones that stole, they have struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And Mr. Job, I alone have escaped to tell you. He said, Job, I'm the only one that got away 
Your foreman is dead. All of your laborers are dead. All of your plow hands are dead. Everyone that took care of the livestock, they're all dead. Job, these Sabians came in with, with cutthroat mentality. They killed everybody. I barely made it away, Job. They got all the stuff and killed everybody. Before he's done talking, another messenger runs up from a different direction. And this messenger says, Job, natural disaster has hit you. Verse 16, the fire of God, that's what they would declare like lightning strikes. That was the euphemism. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Let me, let me just suggest this. This is a very subtle case of what we sometimes do. We, we blame God for what the devil did. He called it the fire of God, but we know who the prince of the power of the air is. God didn't send that lightning strike, although God did permit Satan to come against Job. Satan sends, sends the lightning, and it wipes out the entire flock of sheep and every single shepherd that was supposed to take care of them. So now, natural disaster. I want you to think about this. Human danger has come and taken from me. Natural disaster has come and taken from me. And now in verse 17, another messenger. You got to think it says while he was still talking, while he was still talking. They're not done with the last story about what's hitting Job. Job was just in his kitchen with his wife talking about what they were going to do that day. And then bam, bam, bam. One after another. And here's this next one. Your enemies have finally overcome you, Joe. The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Just pause there for a minute. Some of you have been through um, perhaps a less dramatic version of this, but it's when you pour your whole life into something. And gentlemen, we know that this hits us in ways that it doesn't always hit uh, females, but men wrap so much out of who we are based on what we can produce. And most of the time it's done with a good spirit, but we're very susceptible to put way too much of our identity into our activity. I'm not saying that about Job. The Bible doesn't say that about Job. But what I'm saying is, regardless of whether or not he did that, everything he had ever worked for and built just got blasted. He lost it all. You, you don't just produce all of a sudden hundreds and thousands of sheep and camels and bulls and livestock and all, all the stuff. And, and where are you going to get those hundreds of servants that have all been murdered? It's done. He lost everything. And he hasn't spoken a word yet, but here comes the worst of it. As this next to last messenger is just finishing one more comes down the road. You ever get like this? You're thinking, oh, man, here it comes again. So like, I don't think I can take any more. Who is this and what does he have to say? And this guy has the worst news. All 10 of your children have been killed, Job. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Let's just, can we soak in the heavy moment for a minute? Our impulse is just to, uh, can, can we wind this up? Let's get to the part where he's worshiping God. Let's just sit here for a minute because this is life. This is real life. 
This isn't stuff, stuff a bunch of people in a church on Sunday and pretend that real life doesn't exist. That's what a lot of Christianized religion is doing in our day. And that's why people are not equipped for suffering. There's no theology of suffering because we feel like if somebody cuts us off in traffic, we have the right to be offended for a day. And so we, 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 we have no, or not no, but we have a marginal capacity for trouble to enter into our lives. But I want you to remember a couple of things. God is sovereign, and yes, he could have stopped it. He could have forbidden it. He could have prevented it, but he didn't. Now, what do you do with that? Because what you do with that piece of information is a microcosm. It's a revelation of who you believe God to be. Because if we believe that God has done something wrong, we have much bigger problems than losing our business or burying loved ones. Because we have adopted a position that says, God can't do anything that cost me something or causes me pain. Now, we, we don't say that with our lips. We don't. I get that. We don't say it, but we do sometimes feel it. And we don't know that we feel it until something happens to trigger it. And Job is in the trigger. He's in the trigger moment. God allowed all of this to happen. Is he still a good God? Is he still holy and righteous? Is he still wise? Is he still just? Is he still loving? Is, is he still all of those things? See, those are the questions that we wrestle through. They're philosophical questions, they're relational questions, but ultimately they're theological questions. And what I never want to come away from, uh, questions and answers to those types of questions, I never want to come away from, Oh, he is a big, old, scary God who gets to do whatever he wants to do. I hope he doesn't notice me because I don't want him to let any of the Job stuff hit my life. I want to know that any of that stuff can be allowed by him in my life, and I want to find out, can I still get my praise on? Can I still keep petitioning him in prayer? Can I still keep preaching the gospel? Can I still keep calling out in confident faith that in the midst of the crucible where the flame has been turned up and the impurities are being burned off and what the enemy meant for bad, he's bringing forth some treasure from the trouble. Can I go through that flame and still come out singing and praising? That's what we need to find out. Because, friends, if we can't go there and find that out, then we're going to remain in the shallows of Christianity. And I don't want to remain in the shallows. Why? Because Jesus calls us from deep to deep. Satan was behind all of it. You have a right to be mad at Satan. In spite of the theologian of the 60s and 70s, Mick Jagger, who wanted us to have sympathy for the devil... And all the Gen Xers and baby boomers said, yeah, we know what you're talking about. And the millennials are like, who, what, what? Uh, I have no sympathy for the devil. When, when I sense the enemy on me, do you know what I pray? I say, God, there's a demon after me this season. Be merciless unto that demon. I ask the Lord to operate with no mercy against whatever demon might be hounding me on any given day of the week. I say, well, Jeff, that's not, that's not turning the other cheek. Yeah, you don't turn the other cheek to an emissary of hell. You ask the Lord to kick him in his cheeks. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said it. I shouldn't have said it. We can, we can edit things out. 
I'm being dead serious though, man. I mean, the devil caused it. Be angry with the devil. Don't be angry with God. Don't be bitter at God. That's, that's how the devil wins. The devil wins when God allows the trouble. The devil delights in bringing it to you. And then when the de- devil brings it to you and it happens, you get bitter at God. That's, that's the issue. It's a double win for hell. Because not only does hell get the delight out of seeing you struggle, suffer, or in pain, hell gets the great diabolical glee of knowing that you got bitter at God about it. When God allowed it not to, to crush you, but to crucify you so that he could resurrect you. And we get, I mean, I'm saying we, and this is not accusation. I'm, I'm meaning to be a little provocative and alarming because it's going to happen to all of us. We all are going to be tested in this area at some point. Um, Job and Mrs. Job just found out in one day that they lost everything. Not too long thereafter, Job's wife would just look at him right after he's worshiping and praising God. And she said, enough of this. Why don't you just go ahead and curse this God of ours and then go somewhere and die? So Job didn't only bury 10 kids. He had to watch his wife stumble hard in the faith. There are very few feelings that would weigh any of us down than to lose everything, including our children, and then to have our spouse curse God. I have a lot of grace for Mrs. Job because she nursed all 10 of those kids at her breast. She raised them. She fed them. And now she had to have 10 funerals for them in one day. Be tender with those that struggle in the midst of their suffering. Be very tender when the cracks show in us. Don't sermonize. Don't tell the Mrs. Jobs in their moment, you're not allowed to talk about God that way. How dare you? You know better than that. Don't preach them their sermons back to them. Don't give them nine verses on why they've just sinned against God by doubting him. That's, that's, not, that's not the call on any of our lives. You know what a call on our life is when somebody gets hit like this? It's to weep with those that weep. It doesn't say preach to those that weep. It doesn't say rebuke those that weep. It says get in there and weep with them. So all of this happened in one day. One day within an hour all of Job's life fell apart. So what's he going to do? Well, I've, I've read the verses. We know what he's going to do, but let's, let's go through them and I'll be done. Look at this sublime confession, this confession from Job that came out of the rubble, ascended through the first heaven and the second heaven, entered the third heaven, and in the fragrance of worship made it all the way to the throne room of the sovereign God who had allowed the trouble to find him. Look at it, what he says. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head. We'd have to go back into the ancient times to really understand what this means. But what Job did was he did not hide his grief. He did not pretend it didn't hurt. He didn't act like it was no big deal. 
He didn't do anything in a flippant, religious, insincere, covered, covert, fake, pious, churchianity. He publicly ripped his garment off of him, which was the the display of grief in his culture, and he shaved his head, which would have been an ongoing sign of, I am hurting, I am devastated, I am mourning. You don't know how much this encourages me. Job's about to get down on his face in worship. But being a worshiper, being a true-hearted child of God, does not mean that you will have an inhuman response when trouble hits you. That you won't, I mean, could it be that Christianity, that we've become so super spiritual that we think the higher our faith, the less we feel? Is that the kind of Christianity that's been marketed to us? Because that's not the kind of Christianity I see in the scripture. If that is real faith, then Jesus blew it when he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. When he said himself, my soul is heavy with great sorrows. Jesus on the night he was betrayed said, I am heavy with great sorrows even unto my soul. Job felt the weight of all of it. And one of the greatest things that we can do with each other in our families, in our church families, in our peer groups, among friends, is when somebody gets hit with something, let them grieve. Let them process. Let them act in that moment in a way that may be inconsistent with the way they acted with the Lord when this calamity hadn't hit them before. Let them be human. Now, what's amazing is Job didn't throw down a tent stake there and say, I'm going to live here forever. I'm going to mourn forever. I'm going to grieve forever. I'm going to be unhappy forever. I've got a right to be petulant. I've got a right to to give up. I've got a right to quit. He didn't do any of that, but he did in the moment feel it. It's, It's not unspiritual to love so much that you feel when it, when it hurts. It's not unspiritual, by the way, when material losses strike your life that hits you in ways that are going to affect your livelihood. It's, it's not necessarily Christian to put on some fake waxy smile and say, ah, big deal. I've, I've heard the flippancy of what Job confesses here in a moment. I've heard people flippantly use that. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I've heard people say that while they're preaching funerals to a grieving family on the front row and some some unthinking preacher or pastor leans in and he says, but we all know the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And I'm thinking, yeah, they're dealing with the takeaway. They're in the takeaway moment, man. Have some compassion. Understand that's not normal. They're disoriented. They're hurt. They're struggling. But look at Job. We see him in his devastation, but look at his submission. I love this. So he tears his robe, he shaves his head, and he fell on the ground and he worshiped God. He got on his face before the Lord. He got as low as he felt. And he worshiped God. What does that mean? 
doesn't mean he did some slick little fake happy hallelujah dance. It means he poured his grief out before the Lord. He, he, he put himself in the dust as low as he could go, and he worshiped God. This is what I love about the story of Job. His devastating circumstances didn't devastate his trust. And that's, that's the call on your life. You're not going to be immune from devastating circumstances, but you can be immune from having your trust devastated. You can press through. You must press through. There needs to be time to grieve and there needs to be a process. And there, there is great latitude for weakness and doubt and, and to express that crushing of your spirit. But there is no allowance for you to quit the rest of your life. There's no allowance for you to sit down and say, everything I had is gone, therefore I'll never have anything again. I'll never be anything again. The, the loss I've suffered in the moment will never be replenished by the grace and the goodness that God wants to give in the future. And so we hear his conclusion, verse 21. Worship team, you can come on up if you're ready. This is where he said, he said, I came out of my mother's womb naked, and I, naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. You see, it's okay for Job to say that about Job's loss. Let Job declare that in faith over Job instead of somebody else barking it at him in some sermonic, you know, correction. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, let the Lord's name be magnified. Let the Lord's name be preeminent. Let the glory go to the Lord. It hurts. I've lost. I don't know what to do. I'm mourning. I'm hurting. I don't know, but I know one thing for sure, that my God is still my God. Let his name be blessed forevermore. I magnify the name of the Lord. And he's doing that the same day that his life imploded. And then the testimony of the Holy Spirit is revealed in verse 22. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It's a tall order, isn't it? I've crumbled under far less, have you? I've been hit with far less than that and, and had moments that were um, less faith-filled, less declarative. But when I read that, I say, ooh, that's Job's God is my God. The confidence he expressed in God is the confidence I can have in God. I want to go through whatever I've got to go through, and I want to come in out, I'm going to come out on the other side saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. How good Jesus is, how faithful he is. I've known him as the, the, the one who took me up the mountain to breathe the freshest and cleanest and most beautiful of air to see the spectacular heights of glory and victory. I've known him as that, but now he's, he's made me to know him as the shepherd who holds my hand through the darkest, most frightening, most isolating valley possible. I get to know him on the mountain. I get to know him in the valley. I get to know him when the praise is natural and easy. I get to know him when I have to force the praise out of my gut in order to come out of my lips. I've known him as the one who gives, and now I know him as the one who takes away. I know him as the ever-faithful one who protects me from calamity that would have destroyed me, and he's also the same one that sovereignly allows calamity that would never destroy me but only develop me. I know him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's where we have to come out. Now, I'm going to leave you with this, and I am, I'm done. 
Job chapter 1 is how he began the journey in his loss. The rest of the book of Job is Job working through the difficulty of it. By the time you get to chapter 3, the same guy on his face, and chapter 3 is a week later, the same guy who said, blessed be the name of the Lord, worshiping before the Lord. By the time you get to chapter 3, his body has been afflicted. Physical pain, sickness, boils, festering, oozing, painful sores. He's sitting on an ash heap, scraping his wounds with pottery shards. The dogs are coming to lick his his wounds. The children are running away from him. His family doesn't want to have anything to do do with him. It's all in the testimony of Job. And by the time you get through chapters 3 up through chapter 19, he is saying over and over again, he's saying, what is God doing? What is God doing? What is God doing? What is God doing? And so... Chapter 1 is his launching point, and it's healthy and it's good, but it wasn't, it was the point of his origination, but it wasn't the point of his termination. By the time you get to the last chapter where Job is more blessed in the last chapter than he was at the beginning of the first chapter, that's an awesome way to end your story, by the way, trusting God, pressing through, dealing with it in hard, raw reality, and coming out on the back end even closer to the Lord than when you went into your trouble. That's where we're all wanting to go, but in between, he asked a ton of questions. He got his theology corrected. He got some rebukes from the Lord. The pinnacle was this, though. When Job came through shining and winning, let me tell you something. Hear me on this. Don't think me irreverent. Remember the contest between God and Satan in heaven? Remember the little challenge, little gamble? God didn't beat Satan. Job did. Job beat the devil, which is what God knew would happen the whole time. God knew it would happen the whole time time. So at the end of Job's testimony, it was Job. And by the way, we're not told anywhere in the book of Job that Job was ever told about that conversation between God and Satan. He went through the whole thing, not knowing why it was happening. We know why it was happening. But in the end, Job beat the devil, not by fighting the devil, but by going lower in trust and surrender to the Lord. That is the purpose in your pain. That's the profit in it. If we always seek to avoid the pain or grow bitter at the trouble, we will miss a vault full of spiritual riches that God has set aside for you and for me. Let's stand to our feet.